Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to another episode of Point Counterpoint. I'm your, I'm your host, Chris Ray, from KUST University of St. Thomas Campus Radio. And on this special Election Day episode, I'm going to start out by being like everyone else and say, go vote, because you should. Because democracy and Republican values, and by that I don't mean the party, I mean the general concept of being a a representative democracy. Uh, I'm talking about the general idea uh, of we are... To quote Thomas Jefferson, we are all Democrats, we are all Republicans, because we all live in this experiment that we call America. Does this thing work? It sure seemed like it was working not that long ago. Now we're not real sure. We're all like, uh, I don't know. (laughs) Who knows anymore? Who knows? Well, yeah, um, by the time you're listening to this, um, if you intended to vote, you, I'm sure you already did. Because this is going to be coming out the night of election night. So, yeah, and uh, I don't know. Um, I don't think any of the results have come in yet. Let's see. All right, yeah, nothing. That'd be pretty early. That'd be that'd be a little weird if that were the case. Anyway. I got some stuff to talk about today. It's not political. But I hope that you do find it interesting. Um I hope that when you're listening to this, you've all, you are aware of who Jim Morrison is. He was the lead singer on The Doors. He's in the 27 Club because he died when he was 27 years old of an overdose in Paris, France. That's where he's buried as well. Um, American. Everybody knows his songs, if they're aware of him at all. But not as many people know his poems. He wrote poetry. 
and uh, one of, in fact, one of his songs features a collection of his poetry. It's called, it's called Soft Parade. When I was back there in seminary school, there was a person there who put forth the proposition that you can petition the Lord with prayer. Petition the Lord with prayer. Petition the Lord with prayer. You cannot petition the Lord with prayer. So I'm not going to play the whole thing. I play quite a bit of it, though. So that was really a rip on modern society, that song. Um, but yeah, I will... Uh, caught the ad blocker. Hate that. At this point, the ad blocker is just useless. This is why this is why we need the ad blockers. Because this site is impossible to get through. Here.
There. <laughs> this one's called Power. I can make the earth stop in its tracks. I made the blue cars go away. I can make myself invisible or small. I can make gi become gigantic and reach the farthest things. I can change the course of nature. I can place myself anywhere in space or time. I can summon the dead. I can perceive events on other worlds in my deepest inner mind and in the minds of others. I can, I am. Or maybe this one, um, the world on fire. The world on fire, taxi from Africa, the Grand Hotel. He was drunk. A big party last night, last back go going back in all directions, sleeping these insane hours. I'll never wake up in a good mood again. I'm sick of these stinky boots. Newborn awakening. Gently they stir, gently rise. The dead are newborn, awakening with ravaged limbs and wet souls. Gently they sigh in rapt funeral amazement. Who called these dead to dance? Was it the young woman learning to play the ghost song on her baby grand? Was it the wilderness children? Was it the ghost god himself stuttering cheering, chatting blindly. I called you up to anoint the earth. I called you to announce sadness falling like burned skin. I called you to wish you well, to glory in self like a new monster. And now I call you to pray. Another quote from him, not poetry. I'm the lizard king. I can do anything. And that might sound familiar if you're aware of a certain... Oh, well, I will not be blackmailed by some ineffectual, privileged, effete, soft-penis debutante. You want to start a street fight with me, bring it on, but you're going to be surprised by how ugly it gets. You don't even know my real name. I'm the lizard king. <laughs> Up. Let me guess. Not that I don't want a man, and yet he is still. That's not what I'm saying. That's not. Sorry. Jim, I told Andy to come in, and yet he is still not in. By contrast, Nellie Bertram saw a vacuum and filled it. To make no mention of her business experience or her relationship with Joe Bennett, my boss. Yes. Jim, would you prefer a nature metaphor or a sexual metaphor? 
Oh God, nature, please. When two animals are having sex, one of them is communicating a message to the other. Nothing is, this isn't very helpful. You're gonna wanna hear the sexual metaphor. Was that not the sex? All life is sex, and all sex is competition. Mm -hmm. And there are no rules to that game. That wasn't so perverted now, was it? Is that it? No, that wasn't bad. My point is, there is one person in charge of every office in America, and that person is Charles Darwin. In the end, doesn't he decide who the manager is? No. I would have said no. Mm, let's see, review. <laughs> There is no such thing as a product. Don't ever think there is. There is only sex. Everything is sex. You understand that what I'm telling you is a universal truth, Toby. Yes. Okay. I think the next now would be a good time to go into No, first um one more poem which I think is which is, you know, a lot more wholesome than those Jim Morrison ones. <laughs> this is by Robert Louis Stevenson, The Land of Counterpain. When I was sick and lay abed, I had two pillows at my head, and all my toys beside me lay to keep me happy all the day. And sometimes for an hour or so, I watched my leaden soldiers go with different uniforms and drills among the bedcloths through the hills and sometimes sent my ships in fleets all up and down among the sheets or brought my trees and houses out and planted cities all about. I was the giant, great and still, that sits upon the pillow hill and sees before him dale and plain the, the pleasant land of counterpane. Now, obviously, that's a very old poem because it's Robert Louis Stevenson, but the Jim Morrison one stuff not as not so old. You know, he he died in 1971. Um, the thing is, why am I? There's a reason that I'm doing some of those. I'm reciting some of that the works from other artists. Here. And the idea goes to really who owns a work of art. 
And I think that the great writer Jorge Luis Borges really made a great point in his short story, Pierre Menard, author of the Quixote. So I can't read the whole thing to you, it's too long. And in Spanish. <laughs> I mean, I've read Spanish things to you before, but <laughs> they're shorter. Um, it's a short story, but it's not, it's not like a novel or anything, but yeah, it's a few pages. Um, basically what happens is he writes essentially a book review by a fictional uh, person on this fictional book by this fictional author. This fictional author being Pierre Menard, who wrote this book called El Quixote, which is line by line exactly the same as the book Don Quixote de la Mancha. by Miguel de Cervantes. And he made an interesting point in it. Even though, because you see, it, this came about because he was making his own interpretation of Don Quixote. And he's making his own interpretation and he made, ended up making a book that was line by line exactly the same. And despite this fact, it was still different and it was still distinct with its own meaning and was not the same story. Because, of course, as you, as you may be aware, uh, Don Quixote was, was published in the, in the 1605 and 1615 in two parts, whereas this El Quixote was published uh, it's ficti in, in this fictitious world in the 20th century, separated by hundreds of years, so completely different social contexts, and so different meanings behind them because of this difference in context. So this Pierre Menard, he was interpreting Don Quixote, using his own pre-held pre beliefs, uh, knowledge that he already held, and using that to create his own interpretation, which, although it was word for word the same, was not the same, because of the contextual differences, it was written in a different time, different society. Everything was different. And so Pierre Menard, it's, this is still undisputably the work of Pierre Menard. It's still unequivocally the work of Menard. And to give another example, out, kind of outside of this short story that Borges wrote, um, 
let's say I took a writing or a book. Um, I'll try to think of an example in another language. Um, it doesn't have to be. And it could be. Uh, I could do it in English. Uh, let's say we took. Let's just say we took crime and punishment, either the original Russian or English. We all took the book. We have. We all have the same version. We took the same book. We read it cover to cover. We we saw the same exact words. And there's 20 of us. Let's say there are 20 different interpretations. All are completely unique. I have an interpretation that's different from yours, it's different from his, that's different from hers. The interpretation of each person is different because of their different experiences. And so I could write my interpretation of crime and punishment, have it be exactly the same in terms of its language and it is my work as a matter of fact one could even say Fyodor Dostoevsky he's dead to us now, that's not to say he's unimportant, but that's to say what's important now is how there's an argument to be made that what's important is how to interpret the work here, today, in this context. Like, how, how Dostoevsky interpreted back then, like, that's great to know, but how it's interpreted now is the most important part. Like that was, he wrote he wrote Crime and Punishment in eighteen eighty, you know, in sixty something. Uh, uh, eighteen eighteen sixty six. Yes. And of course. Um, Don Quixote is even older, as I said, 1605, 1615. In two parts. Um, and so in Miguel de Cervantes, how he interpreted it is not particularly of interest to us. And this actually conflicts with the idea of Brad Forth in the movie Finding Forrester, where William Forrester was upset with all these different people going into his different books, and they're going, well, I think it says this, and I think it says this, I think it says this. And he get, was getting annoyed with this because everyone's trying to pick in there and try to figure out what it says when they, don't, when they have no idea what the author says. And... Well, actually, in a way, it agrees with finding with Forrester. In a way, it doesn't. Um, so, and because the tr because Forrester would say, you know, they have no idea what was going on in the author's head, and that's true, they don't, and that's the point. 
We don't know what was going on in Cervantes' head, so it doesn't matter. His psychological life is private to us. It is only known by him, and we only know what he told us through his writings. And so that's why our interpretations are of most are of the most valuable value. But it differs from finding Forrester in that we should be able to make our own interpretations. Even if it does conflict with the author. And you know, it should conflict. I mean, I shouldn't say it should conflict. It's okay if it conflicts. Because we're, we all have our own experiences and we read something and, you know, we have a belief. We have a idea of what it's trying to say. It speaks to different people in different ways. And, uh, you know, uh, when Upton Sinclair wrote The Jungle, he was right. He wrote that to try to, to talk about horrible working conditions and try to work and try to push for regulations um, to help the worker. But when the readers read The Jungle, they were more concerned with food quality. We're like, hey, is that is that really what's going into our meat? So yeah, pretty good thing that people picked apart the meat quality in that book. Not to say that the workers' rights isn't important either, but like pretty good that at least some people, in this case a lot of people, were very concerned about what was going into their meat because it meant that we were, I mean, I suppose, yeah. It meant that we were making an attempt to increase food quality. Yeah. And so when I when I was reading Jim Morrison poetry when I was so yeah I'll I'll even yeah no I'm not going to read that part um Borges was a very, very, very interesting individual. He, he had another short story, much shorter, um, which I could read here. Um, I'll, I'll read the Spanish and the English. I'll start in Spanish, okay? There's an English translation underneath it. En aquel imperio, el arte de la cartografía logró tal perfección que el mapa de una sola provincia ocupaba todo, toda una ciudad y el mapa del imperio toda una provincia. Con el tiempo, estos mapas desmesurados no satisfizieron y los colegios de cartógrafos levantaron un mapa del imperio que tenía el tamaño del imperio y coincidía puntualmente con él. Menos adictas al estudio, 
de la cartografía, las generaciones siguientes entendieron que ese dilatado mapa era inútil y no sin impiedad lo entregaron a las inclemencias del sol y los inviernos. En los tiertos del oeste perduran despedazadas ruinas del mapa habitadas por animales y por mendigos. En todo el país no hay otra reliquia de las disciplinas geográficas. This is called Del Rigor in la Ciencia. And then the English translation on the exactitude in science um, is, In that empire, the art of cartography reached such perfection that the map of a single province occupied a whole city and the map of the empire a whole province. In the course of time, these disproportionate maps were found wanting and the colleges of cartographers elevated a map of the empire that was the same scale as the empire and coincided with it point for point less fond of the study of cartography. Subsequent generations understood that such an expanded map was useless and not without a reverence they abandoned it to the inclemencies of the sun and the end of winters. In the deserts of the west, tattered ruins of the map still abide, inhabited by animals and beggars in the whole country. There is no other relic of the disciplines of geography. So, um, very interesting story. Obviously, you wouldn't want a map with a scale of a mile to a mile. But this, I'm reading uh, some of its influences here. The story elaborates on a concept. In Lewis Carroll's Sylvie and Bruno Concluded, a fictional map that had the scale of a mile to a mile, to the mile. Uh, one of Carroll's characters notes some practical difficulties with this map and states that we now use the country itself as its own map and I assure you it does nearly as well. And then um, quoting from Lewis Carroll's work uh, What a useful thing a pocket map is, I remarked. There's, an there's another thing we've learned from your nation, said Meinherr. Map making, but we've carried it much farther than you. What do you consider it the largest map that would be really useful? About six inches to the mile. Only six inches, exclaimed Meinherr. We very, we, we very soon got to the six yards to the mile. Then we tried a hundred yards to the mile and then came to the grandest idea of all. We actually made a map of the country on the scale of a mile to the mile. Have you used it much, I inquired. It has never been spread out yet, said Meinherr. The farmers objected. They said it would cover the whole country and shut out the sunlight so we now use the country itself as its own map and I assure you it does nearly as well Umberto Eco expanded upon the theme quoting Borges's paragraph as the epigraph for a short story on the impossibility of drawing a map of the empire on the scale of one to one It was collected in Eco's How to Travel with a Salmon and Other e Essays.
Yeah. Yes, sirree. Scarred by a father's belt, she's trying to rise. Story of her boyfriend of teenage stone death games. Handsome lad, dead in a car. Confusion. No connections. Come here. I love you. Peace on earth. Will you die for me? Eat me. This way. The end. I'm surprised you could get it up. He whips her lightly, sardonically with belt. Haven't I been through enough, she asks, now dressed and leaving. The Spanish girl begins to bleed. She says her period. It's Catholic heaven. I have an ancient Indian crucifix around my neck. My chest is hard and brown. Lying on stained, wretched sheets with a bleeding virgin. We could plan a murder or start a religion. There's a belief by the children of man which states all will be well. Search on, man, calm savior, veteran of wars, incalculable greed. Search on, man, calm savior, God speed and forgive you. Morning star, fragrant meadow person girl. Indian, Indian, what did you die for? Indian says nothing at all. Come upstairs, sir, to your room and I will play for you. Discovery. Angels and sailors, rich girls, backyard fences, tents, dreams watching each other narrowly, soft, luxuriant cars, girls in garages stripped, out to get liquor and clothes, half gallons of wine and six packs of beer, tender corral, jumped, humped, born to suffer, made to undress in the wilderness. Now listen to this. Now listen to this. Now listen to this. I'll tell you about Texas radio and the big beat. Soft, driven, slow and mad like some new language. Reaching your head with the cold, sudden fury of a divine messenger. Let me tell you about heartache and the loss of God. Wandering, wandering in hopeless night. The Negroes in the forest, brightly feathered. Let me show you the maiden with wrought iron soul. Out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Yeah. Always good to listen to him reciting a little poetry, you know. Hold on.
Okay. I was going to talk about this last week, but uh, I, I forgot to. But I'm doing it now, so yeah. This is uh, on the Smithsonian. Um, a man see was seen dumping bags of eels into a lake at New York City Park. Uh, officials say the non-native eels are unlikely to survive the winter, but experts caution that the serpent-like fish could still disturb the ecosystem. Uh, late last month, bystanders near Prospect Park Lake in Brooklyn, New York, witnessed a man dressed in white dumping two garbage bags full of live, wriggling eels into the lake, reports Marion Renal of the Associated Press, AP. Andrew Orkin, a music composer who was out for an evening run near the lake, saw one of the two large plastic tra trash bags split open as a man dragged them towards the water's edge, spilling the writhing creatures onto the ground, according to the AP. Another witness, Dominic Pabon, was angling for catfish with his wife when he heard the man dragging the bags of eels cry, I'm saving their lives, when onlookers started to press him for details about what in the world he thought he was doing. Pabon, a chef and oyster caterer, tells Jack Denton of Curbed that, he that he'd caught a few black-spotted eels in the lake in recent years, but that, but that the species isn't native to the area. Pabon confronted the eel liberator and recorded a video of the encounter with his phone, according to Ray Villetta of NBC News, New York. Is that all eels? What? Is that all eels? No, I bought it for the store. Yeah, but that's like a hundred eels. I don't care. Why don't you care? That's illegal. What? That's not legal. I saved the life. No, you're not. Saving life, they sell. You're the killing stuff. other life in here. No. Eels are not supposed to be here. It's loyal. It's loyal. Yeah, you're corrupt. It's, it's dude. You're lucky. Just get out of here, please, man. Okay, okay, okay. I'm sorry. I'm gonna call the cops if you don't leave. That's okay, fucked okay, up, okay. dude. I just want to save lives. Yeah, but you gotta fucking ask the parks department first. Oh. There's a whole like system. Okay. That's what people do, you know. So on the video, Pabon can be heard telling the man that dumping the live animals in the lake is illegal and that his activities may end up killing other life by disrupting the lake's ecosystem. The Prospector Park Alliance cor corroborated the illegality of the eel dumping in a statement to, into NBC New York. The release of pets and other animals in the park is illegal without a permit. It is a hazard both to those animals and the plants and the wildlife that call the park home. The Brooklyn paper's Ben Verdue reports the f that fines for illegal dumping range from $1,500 to $10,000 for the first violation and $5,000 to $20,000 for each subsequent violation. Pretty hefty, you know. Witnesses capture a man throwing eels into Prospect Park Lake in Brooklyn. The man got away, but wildlife experts hope others take away an important message from this illegal activity. CBS 2's Jenna DeAngelis has the video. Yeah, you're not supposed to be dumping eels here, dude. That's the voice of Dominic Pabon approaching a man he says was throwing eels into Prospect eels? Park Lake Sunday night. He alerted the man. That's not legal. I'm saving the life. No, you're not. Saving life, they sell. You're killing other life in here. No. Pabon fishes often, as he was doing with his wife when he first heard the commotion around 7.30 p.m. Out of nowhere, this lady was screaming, snakes, snakes. And I turned around and I, I knew because I fished that it was eels and they were all about like a foot, foot and a half. We also spoke to Andrew Orkin, who was running in the park when he witnessed a man in all white dumping the eels. 
The guy had two big black contractor bags that were full of eels. How many do you think were there? Easily more than 100, and they were all alive. Um, so he started unpacking them into the water, and that's when we confronted him. My initial reaction was to stop it, you know, because I fished there and I've caught eels here and they're not native to the lake. Both men concerned about the impact this could have on the 55 acre lake called police. You don't need to call cops. No, man, this I is said illegal what you're doing. They're an invasive species from further down the country. They may probably won't survive the winter, our, our colder winters. So, they, you know, that what they're doing basically is signing a death warrant to, to the animal. Says Marty Royce, wildlife and aquatic technician with the Prospect Park Alliance, explaining why introducing a non-native species into the lake is illegal. When you introduce a disease into the human body, that breaks down the whole native system. You introduce a, a, an invasive species here, that turns the whole table of the lake. It can change the whole being of the lake. The wildlife expert says the takeaway is if you ever have an animal you want to give up, you should bring it to an animal organization before ever bringing it here. In Prospect Park, Jenna DeAngelis, CBS 2 News. Okay. Oh, also, um, quick side note. Um, I was talking about finding Forrester. Uh, Sean Connery died on Saturday, Halloween, October 31st, 2020. Sean Connery, James Bond, the original, and William Forrester died. Junior. Double seven. Shaken not stirred. I didn't write those words. Jamal Wallace did. We all love, we all love John Connery. Most non-native animals, yeah. We already read that. Okay, so... That brings me to a pseudoscientific belief that I wanted to talk about which the guy was talking about made the connection of you know um, you know you bring like a virus or any kind of outside uh, harmful entity into the body and it messes up the native system just like with the invasive species you bring in like a python to Florida it messes up a native system well there's some people who don't believe that they don't accept germ theory, and they accept something that we like to call um, terrain theory. And I will explain what that is. So, first of all, germ theory denialism is a pseudoscientific belief that germs do not cause infectious disease, and that germ theory of disease is wrong. It usually involves arguing that Louis Pasteur's model of infectious disease was wrong, and that Antoine Bechamps was right. In fact, its origins are rooted in Bechamps empirically disproved in the context of disease theory of pleomorphism. Another obsolete variation is known as terrain theory and postulates that disease tissue attracts germs rather than being caused by it. All right. Germ theory de denialism, or GDTTD, uh, GTTD. <laughs> Spell long day. 
is, an old, as, is as old as germ theory itself, beginning with the rivalry of Pasteur and Bichamp. Pasteur's work is prevent, in preventing beverage contamination led him to discover that it was due to microorganisms and led him to become the first scientist to prov prove the validity of the theory and to popularize it in Europe. Pasteur was not the first to have the idea, and scientists such as Girolamo Francistoro, who had the idea that fomites could harbor the seeds of contagion, Agostini Bassi, who discovered that muscardine disease of silkworms was caused by a fungus that was named Bulveria bassiana, Friedrich Hennel, who developed the concepts of the contagion vivum and the contagion animatum, and others had proposed ideas similar to germ theory. Bichamp strongly contested Pasteur's view, proposing a competing idea known as the pleomorphic theory of disease. This theory says that all life is based on the forms that certain class of organisms take, take during stages of their life cycles, and that germs are attracted to the environment of diseases issued rather than being the cause of it. Proponents of this idea insist the, that microbes can, that live in an organism go through the same stages of their development according to Gunther Enderline. The stages are as follows. Colloid, microbe, primitive phase. Bacteria, middle phase, fungus, end phase. Earlier non-germ theories, in addition to the earlier idea of miasma, focus on the spontaneous generation, the idea that living matter could arise from non-living, and the and the terrain theory variation of Bichamp's ideas. Pasteur disproved spontaneous generation with a series of experiments in 1870s. However, understanding the cause of a sickness does not always immediately lead to the effective treatment of, sick of sickness and the great decline in mortality during the 19th century stemmed mostly from improvements in hygiene and cleanliness. In fact, one of the first movements to deny, to deny the germ theory, the sanitary movement, was nevertheless central in developing America's public health infrastructure, providing clean water and sanitation reduction, reduce, and sanitation reduced the environment for pathogens to develop. The mortality rates fell dramatically. GDT-TD has significant overlap with chiropractic practice. Uh, many chiropractors believe immunity to be a function of spine alignment and of the brain's ability to communicate efficiently with the body and that it has little did, did nothing to do with external pathogens. A common thread among the many alternative medicine proponents is a po opposition to vaccines, and some use GDTD to justify their claims. Germ theory deniers make many claims about the biological underpinnings of the theory and the historical record that are at odds with the most modern scientists and ex historians accept. Another claim from the anti-vaccine community involves the theory that all diseases are caused by toxo toxemia due to inadequate diet and health practices. Yeah, but I explained that. I explained that. Uh, maybe I'll skip that. Yes, Um. Come back with me to about 1853 in England, in London. 
This was the heyday of the spiritualist movement, seances, where people wanted to contact the dead. Well, Michael Faraday, one of the most famous scientists who ever lived, invented the electric generator, electric motor, and he was intrigued by what he heard about the goings-on at such a seance. So he went to one, and he found that the sitters were around the table, and it seemed that when they had their hands close to that table, the table would move. The table would tilt, even levitate. And this was intriguing. He thought that there had to be some fraud that was involved in the levitating table. And indeed, it turned out that in some cases, there was. But he looked and he looked, and in some other cases, no matter what, he couldn't see any kind of trickery and let people had their hands on the table and the table still moved. He didn't understand what was going on. Well, he was a very clever scientist, of course, and he devised a way to test this. He glued some cardboards onto the table and the cardboards could move without the table moving because he wanted to show that the force was actually coming from people's hands. They weren't conscious of it. Eventually, this was called the ideomotor movement. And he thought that the people wished so much that they could see the spirits, that they actually made the spirits appear, but it was by their own hand motion. And he showed this with a clever design of cards on top of a table, and that the cards moved before the table moved. And the sitters became convinced of this. It put a dagger into the spiritualist movement, but it did not uh, end it. I mean, it is still with us today. Well, this movement that, that uh, I'm talking about, the so-called ideomotor movement, is a very interesting one. And you may have heard about this because it's involved in the pendulum movement business. You know, these things where you hold a pendulum and if it goes in one direction for a pregnant lady, she's going to have a boy. If it goes in the other direction, she's going to have a girl, all this kind of thing. Well, what is going on here? How is it that the pendulum can move without the hand moving? And this is called the ideomotor reaction. You can have a thought and you don't even realize it and the pendulum starts to move. And it can even shift directions without being aware of that. Really a very, very interesting phenomenon. Psychics sometimes use this, and it can be very convincing. Let me try it. Let me ask the question. Are there still quacks around? If so, let's see pendulum go to the right. If no, if spirits really do exist, go to the left. I would say that that's pretty conclusive. Spirits do not exist. <laughs> yeah. So, um, that's the aging motor effect. That is how... That is how Ouija boards work. Here's something that I saw one time. Um, 
targeted treatment of cancer with radiofrequency electromagnetic fields, amplitude modulated at tumor-specific frequencies. In the past century, there have been many attempts to treat cancer with low levels of electric and magnetic fields. We have developed non-invasive biofeedback examination devices and techniques and discovered that patients with the same tumor type exhibit biofeedback responses to the same precise frequencies. Intrabucal administration of 27.12 megahertz radiofrequency electromagnetic fields, uh, which are amplitude modulated at tumor-specific frequencies, results in long-term objective responses in patients with cancer and is not associated with any significant adverse response effects. Intrabucal administration allows for for therapeutic delivery of a very low and safe level of EMF or electromagnetic fields um, throughout the body as exemplified by responses observed in the femur, liver, adrenal glands, and lungs. In vitro studies have demonstrated that tumor-specific frequencies identified in patients with various forms of cancer are capable of blocking the growth of tumor cells in a tissue in tumor-specific fashion. Current experimental evidence suggests that tumor-specific modulation frequencies regulate the expression of genes involved in migration and invasion and disrupt the, the mitotic spindle. This novel targeted treatment approach is emerging as an appealing therapeutic option for Patients with advanced cancer, given its excellent tolerability, dissection of the molecular me- mechanisms accounting for the anti-cancer effects of tumor-specific modulation frequencies is likely to lead to the discovery of novel pathways in cancer. From 2013. That's pretty cool. What is this? I'm hoping the black one. <laughs> this is a proposed way that some people claim they can sex birds using a copper wire. I don't believe it. Can't be true. I'm hoping the black one's a female. Her, her parents said so. The black one, that male, and the pigeons. Man. I like pigeons, as you probably are aware. Let's see if they are. I've talked to pigeons a number of times. Okay, this is just a copper uh, copper wire made out of some electrical uh, wiring. It's a wine cork and about a four inch piece of uh, string. This is how it works. I hold it as still as I can. First, it's going back and forth. Let it do that for a little bit. Either it's a hen, or sometimes, most of the time, it'll start making a big white circle. So, this bird, I don't know if it's male or female yet. So, I'm going to make the pork go into a circle. Right back to straight back and forth. Try it again, make it go in a circle.
Oh, yeah, that's a hand. Yeah, that's definitely a hand there. Um, yeah, that's definitely the, that's got to be the adio motor effect right there. Gotta be. Gotta be. How can it not be? Like, you really think you can predict gender using a copper wire and a and a wine cork. No way, man. No way. Absolutely not. I will not accept it. I will not accept this as this as truth. Okay. Well, I'm I'm about out of time, folks. It's been great to know you. Um, this has been Chris Wright as the host of Point Counterpoint from KUST, University of St. Thomas, Campus Radio. Yeah, it's been Lit Fam. Namaste. Now give me a big kiss.